Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. Hi and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So on today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing my friend Claire Fuller. Claire is a nurse. She is a lead practitioner for palliative and end-of-life care. She's a mum. She's a fitness instructor and yoga enthusiast. And she's just absolutely incredible. I wanted to have this conversation with Claire because I trust her. She is amazing. She has over 30 years of experience in palliative and end-of-life care. And I thought that this was a discussion and a topic that unfortunately I think everyone will be able to relate to, either as a professional or as a parent or a child or a carer, that unfortunately we will have known somebody that's passed away. I have tried to record this intro so many times and I keep messing it up because I don't want to paraphrase Claire's words. They're best coming from an expert. I shed a few tears in this podcast because it's close to my heart. Both my mum and dad passed away. My mum passed away when I was 15. My dad passed away when I was 21. So I know firsthand how difficult it is to navigate a system and get the support when you need it most but not quite knowing where to go or where to start. Um, I asked Claire how does she find joy and fulfilment in such a difficult role but she sees it as a privilege to be able to help people when they need it most and towards the end of this podcast I asked Claire if the listeners just took away one thing what would you want them to do or know? And she's talked about planning, the importance of planning and changing the notion of having difficult conversations into important conversations. If you like this episode, as always, we would ask you if you could give us a little shout out on social media. You can find me at Twitter um, at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn Tara Humphrey on Instagram. I'm also at THC Primary Care. I hope that this resonates with you and I hope that if you do not have your plans in place as a result of this podcast, you book that appointment and you sit down with your family and you make those arrangements and we will see you in the next episode. Hi Claire, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Morning Tara and thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this very much. My pleasure. So Claire and I know each other. We used to work together um, when it was, what was it called? It was called Medway CPN and then it turned into North Kent Training Hub. We became friends while we worked together 
and Claire has um, a slightly different role, which is around end of life care. And I think it's a really, really important conversation. It's a very difficult conversation. I wanted to have it with somebody that I knew really well because um, we've both got some personal experiences that we think would be helpful to share. So Claire, could you give us an introduction to your career today and what you do now? Yes. Hi, Tara. Um, so I, I was just scrolling down some notes in my introduction and um, I've had a long end of life career. started way back in 1992 um, as a hospice nurse. We were called staff nurses way back then. Um, I progressed through to becoming a sister in, the, in a hospice, worked in a different hospice. Um, I then did a variety of roles under the guise of the hospice still and providing clinical support for electronic record keeping, which um, way back, that was before most organisations had started electronic record keeping, so um, personalised electronic notes and it, the challenges that's brought. So it's really interesting working on the development side of that, gives you an interesting perspective. Um, whilst at the hospice, I still um, went to become a clinical nurse specialist in the community. So again, really valuable seeing what, what care delivery is the other side. You're outside the four walls of a hospice, so great experience. I progressed to working in an acute hospital setting, so still employed by the hospice, but as a clinical nurse specialist um, in an acute setting. And my goodness, Tara, what a different environment to, to work in then. So providing palliative care for the generalist population. And I think at that time it was a real eye-opener, Tara, because it, it took me from the safety of a hospice, if that makes sense, to an environment where so many people do die. And it made me realise that we had to get it right to the general population for so many people, not for the, the few that actually did die in a hospice. So hospices have an absolutely fantastic role for education and support and specialists. But we mustn't forget that so many people do end their life in a hospital, so do spend their last days in the hospital, and the need to upskill the doctors and nurses that work there. In the hospital role, I provided the clinical nurse education specialist role as well, which was great. So I spent a lot of time teaching nurses, doctors, student nurses, um, and working with consultants um, supporting their journey. From there, I, I took on a national work role working for something called the Gold Standards Framework, well-established in primary care. I'm sure you've, you've heard of the GSF. And the Gold Standards Framework were at a stage where they wanted to implement the very well-recognised GSF programme into an acute hospital setting. So with the background in palliative care and in hospitals, it, it seemed a, a good move to make. And that was a really great experience. During that time, I also applied to become a CQC, um, the terrifying word is inspector or specialist advisor. Um, and again, that gave me another lens to look through. So looking at palliative care from an inspection point of view, so great experience there. Um, then I come on to the period of time where, where we actually worked together, Tara. Um, and that's the first point in my career that I wasn't involved in end-of-life care. And that was working for a, a large CCG. That role involved um, working and developing in primary care, supporting nurses, um, predominantly practice nurses. Um, I think it was healthy to have a couple of years break from palliative care, having a nearly 30-year career in it. I was reflecting on my career as I was preparing talking to you this morning, and I realised part of the reason that I absolutely love that role as well, because it was very much a people role, Tara. Where you met me. Where I met you. Yeah, I just, I just made it for you. <laughs> so the role was very much about networking, about relationship building and about supporting. So the, the skills that I enjoy, the, the parts of a job that I love were very predominant there as well. Um, and meeting you. The other interesting element to it, and I, and I suppose everybody working in healthcare would say that this is a really interesting time in healthcare. But that time felt an interesting time to be working in primary, primary care. A lot of developments, a lot of changes that you're very, very well aware of. 
and it gave me a brilliant insight into national and local developments as well and how that impacts. So again, the privilege of seeing end-of-life care through a different lens. Um, I did find that I would naturally gravitate to end-of-life issues in, in that role, but that wasn't my remit. And after a couple of years, I realised, yeah, no, I, I wanted to go back into end-of-life and palliative care. That journey took me to work into a, a large community healthcare trust, which is my current position um, as a practitioner there. I've almost feel I've come a full circle, Tara, because in April, you, you mentioned personal experience as well. So in April, on a very personal level, I provided end-of-life care to um, a close family relative. So for all my experiences, I've, I've seen end-of-life care through many different lenses, but I've also seen it through a carer lens quite recently as well. And I'd say, my God, what a lot I learned through that experience. So a wide career, end-of-life care through many different lenses, and I hope that gives me quite a rounded view. I think we can become very introverted in different specialisms, and I think it's really healthy, and I value the fact that I've seen my job from so many different lenses, and I can appreciate different people's viewpoints through those lenses. So that's my profession. The real me, if you like, or maybe that is the real me, I don't know. If you're asking me to identify myself, I would identify myself as a nurse. So that I think if you cut me in, cut me in half like a, a candy bar, you'd see a nurse running through me, whatever that means. So it's I identify as a nurse, I identify as a mum. I would say that's my most important job to two fantastic children. The other bits that I love, I love being in my garden. I find that gives me mind space, not growing flowers. I'm very much a vegetable grower. I think you've seen my, my bits that I share. Um, I adore travelling. I adore learning through travel. Um, I've spent five weeks, luckily, quite recently, travelling through India, which was fantastic. Um, and I recently went on a yoga retreat, which really important time to give me some headspace and mind space. Um, and the other really important element, I think, is I, I love yoga. Um, and that's taught me so much about how to cope with life, my job. Um, it talks about being kind to yourself, about being able to make mistakes and non-violence, one of the arms of yoga, and, and not being violent to yourself, being kind to yourself. So that's just a little flavour of who I am, trying to bottle it for you. So when you said um, yoga is teaching you to be kind to yourself, I really want my listeners to know that before we went, we press record Claire said, I'm really angry at myself for feeling so nervous about coming on. How does yoga help you to be kind to yourself? And it's interesting that you, you're self-aware and you knew that. You're like, I'm nervous. Why am I nervous? I'm speaking to my friend. Yep. I've got nothing to be nervous about. How does yoga help you capture that thought and kind of discard it? That's a really good question, Tara. And um, two or three ways I can answer that. So um, firstly, it's understanding, and yoga's taught me that everything in life is not permanent, so nothing is permanent. So any experience you go through, or you may be dreading, or you may think, how on earth am I going to get through that experience? That time and that moment will pass. Um, so firstly, it's, it's taught me about that, that lack of permanence. Secondly, it's, it teaches that everybody associates yoga with the, the poses of the asanas, and oh, I can't do yoga because I'm not flexible, but that's only a tiny part of yoga, and it's about understanding yourself and your body. To me, that's what I take from yoga as well. So working within your body, t- taking your body to its limits, take, how far can you push yourself within your safe limits? It's about not comparing yourself to others. So um, if yoga is to somebody, is, um, somebody who's very immobile, it means they're breathing. That's fine. That's their yoga, and that's, that's absolutely perfect. If it's somebody else putting themselves in a pretzel pose, that's their yoga, and that's perfect. And I think, finally, the, um, the elements of breathing, the union of your breath and, and linking that to your movements, 
is a brilliant way of meditation and calming yourself as well. So from all those different angles, yoga has been a fantastic help. So I know every day is different, especially when you work in healthcare, there's no typical day, but can you give us a sense of what your job is? What do you do? That's a great question. My mum and dad have asked me so many times over the past (laughs) few years. Um, My recent roles have been harder to explain. Um, I think it's really good to condense it into my role being a mixture of proactive response and reactive response as well. So um, a lot of what I do is managing small projects to improve patient experience and staff experience as well. A lot of what I do is developing education and that can mean the the overarching program of education or delivering education. Education would fall into two different brackets. So some will be our routine education, so programmes we know we have to run, things like DNA CPR, do not attend cardio or resuscitation, or basic end-of-life care skills. And the second part of the education would be um, responding to any themes and trends that we may pick up, soft intelligence that we find out we need to respond to. Um, another part of my, my role would be providing a clinical expertise on any incidents that occur in the organisation and how we best learn from them. So every Every um, event can be learned from. How do we do things better and how do we improve in the future? Um, My days can be taken up with um, meetings as well. Um, I have the privilege of working with some great champions across our organisation. And a lot of my role is spent um, developing the role of these champions so that they can disseminate end-of-life care across the organisation. Could you give an example of some of the soft intelligence which you feel warrants closer attention? Yeah, so we monitor um, any incidents that come through and um, I think soft intelligence you gain through communication with, with your teams, with the people that you work with. Uh, and working across a large trust, if I'm hearing the same story from somebody else, it may be quite minor to them, but you're picking it up more than once. You're starting to build a pattern. So that's sort of soft intelligence I'll be gathering um, and, and trying to make sense of that. So if something's a problem in one patch, I hear it in another patch. That tends to make me, you know, click on some alarm bells and think that's something we need to address and we need to look at. So end of life care, it's interesting that you, you found your passion and you've been in working in this field for such a long time. My perception would be that it's such a difficult job in educating people and working directly with families. How do you find enjoyment in such a difficult role? That's a great question and something I've probably been asked so many times it can sound a cliche but to be allowed to work with people at such a vulnerable time I can honestly say has been an amazing privilege in life as well so I tend to flip it around and think how how lucky am I that people have let me in to work with them during that time it's what a privilege how many people can say that at work so I'll be very honest and, and I gain from that that to be able to give something feels feels good it's good to help others People often say, my goodness me, it's a morbid job. Doesn't that sound ghastly? Or walking into a hospice, that must be awful. And if you speak to so many people who walk into a hospice, they, their reaction is, my goodness, I didn't expect it to be so much life, so much fun, so much food, so much celebration of life as well. My experiences are that you, you cannot change. I cannot stop people dying. I can't, I can't prevent that from happening. But what I can influence, Tara, is the way in which that happens. These are life-changing events for people and if I can imp the experience as pain-free, as dignified and what that person wants it to be, then that's great. I can't take away the event, but I can change how it happens. Um, I recognise that everybody's final months and death is very different as well and that's not my blueprint. What I think is a, 
the cliche good death is different for somebody else. So it's respecting that for everybody and, and hopefully delivering. I think fulfillment and enjoyment comes from, I hope this comes across, I like people, I love working with people and being a passionate advocate for people as well. So people are very vulnerable as you approach the end of life and quite often you don't have a voice. So I've gained fulfillment and enjoyment for being a voice for so many people that I felt haven't had a voice. I mean, when you're frightened, weak and tired, you need somebody to talk for you. Some of the biggies, some of the real enjoyments, if you like, the, the key things that I would pull out as well are the classics, when you make someone's wish come true. So over the years, I was reminiscing over things like helicopter rides, London Eye, things like that. And um, something that will surprise you and I think your listeners as well, over the years, I've been involved with a lot of organ donation. And, and reading through my files, uh, it made me realise you, you see people, people's letters, you know, thank you, you know, from having a conversation with somebody, you've, you've enabled the gift of sight to others. And once, and I, I think this is a real standalone, um, I was caring for a patient who needed a heart-lung transplant for cystic fibrosis and actually took the call for him. I remember sitting on his bed and mentioning his name. And he looked at me, known him for years, and I said, yep, Time to get dressed now. We go into hospital. So these are the different elements of fulfilment. Um, Tara, it's knowing that I make a difference. I'm making a difference to people's lives has helped. Um, and more recently, my um, enjoyment of fulfilment is over the more latter years has been from trying to share my passion, my knowledge with others, so I can achieve so much on my own with a patient or with a caseload. But I hope I can achieve so much more by educating other people, by hopefully demystifying death. Um, by getting across the message that whilst every death is absolutely special, not every death needs a specialist nurse. This is some general nurses who do very well. I, I could talk forever about my passion and, and my enjoyment, but that summarises, I hope, some elements of enjoyment. So when you were talking, I did. I, I haven't got any tissues, but I felt like I was going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> you saw me prepare. I've got some somewhere. <laughs> you, haven't even, you haven't even said anything sad. Um, I suppose everybody, unfortunately, I think every listener will have had an experience of somebody in their life passing away. And it doesn't always have to be sad. But I suppose when I think of death and end of life care and dying and illness, it just makes me sad. And I think it's how can we celebrate the life when it's our time to go? We want to go peacefully and mm. in a in a nice comfortable way and it's how can we try to say to people I know that it's sad but it's not it doesn't have to be so devastating and even the subject doesn't have to make you feel sad because that's just one moment and you've got somebody's whole life to reflect on what do you say to people to try to help them come to terms and look at the good rather than the the sadness that's a mighty big question um, I think if you plan and if you feel that you're completing somebody's wishes, whatever those wishes will be, and, and recognising that they're very different to everybody, that's a major help as well. I'm going to pick up on the word you say, you, you asking a question, and that's what do I say to people? And I would turn that round to you and say it's more about listening to people than saying to people. There aren't magic words. There aren't magic words that can make this better. But if you listen to what somebody wants, um, everybody's different, everybody wants something different. And I think more importantly than what you say is often how you listen. And then if you've really listened to somebody, if you've really understood what they want, you then work within their goals. So those key questions, what, what matters to you? 
what makes your life worthwhile um what makes you get up in the morning and what, what matters to you is the most important question and then once you've got that um linchpin if you like once you've got that foundation you then know how to have your conversation with that patient because everybody is different i'm going to get some tissue one sec <laughs> i'm sorry Okay. I would also think it's worth saying that um, I think this is a difficult podcast to do. And I would say, as I would say at the beginning of every teaching, we don't know who's listening to this and anybody's experiences as well. And that everybody's, everybody's you say, will have, have been through their own personal experiences to recognise that it can be difficult to hear at times. Yeah. One of the things that, you posted on Twitter was was the reason why I wanted you to come onto the podcast and I'm going to hopefully read it without butchering it um, so in April you tweeted I find myself suddenly in the position of a carer at end-of-life care I never could have imagined how hard it would be to get help in a crisis please can you share your experiences and so many people responded to that, um, myself included. Can you talk to me about your experience? Yes. Um, obviously, it's, it's quite a new recent experience, so it still remains raw. Um, a close family member was reaching the end of their life and made a decision that they didn't want to go to hospital. Um, obviously, you're in the, the current crisis. It, hospital at the moment is... At that point, it was likely to mean that we potentially wouldn't see this this person again, this man again. Um, so we had a, a great discussion and his choice was to remain at home. Um, so from that point, I committed to support him and our family to, to enable that wish. So coming back to what we spoke to at the beginning, what made it difficult, Tara, was I wanted very much to be a carer. I didn't want to be a nurse. I didn't feel... I ought to be a nurse, if that makes sense. I wanted to be the role that I was within that family. It was outside the areas that I work, I want to point out as well. Um, but I realised that if I hadn't known what I was doing, the death wouldn't have happened the way it did happen. And I'm delighted to say that um, the gentleman passed away. He died incredibly peacefully, surrounded by his family, in his home, with pictures of family in front of him. Um, why I tweeted Tara was because I found that I, ha I was the doer in that situation. I found that the dots didn't join up. So I spent a long while the other side of the bridge talking about how we join, join dots up, how patients are in the middle, the different models of healthcare that we talk about, um, which is right and proper. But my experiences was that it, our dots just didn't join. Um, and I was the joiner of the dots, if that makes sense. Sorry. Sorry. You okay? Yeah, so yes, I'm fine. I just find it sad. Mm. I um, shared on that post, so both my mum passed away when I was 15 and my dad passed away when I was 21. And the experience I shared was that I, th I was just left. So you've mentioned about being the doer. My sister was at university. I know she wasn't, she was traveling. So when my mum passed away, and maybe it's just my personality, kind of I looked after my dad. Um, and then, although I was quite young, 
and then when my dad passed away I think at the time I was at uni I was working two jobs um, I was the only person living in the house um, so it's like I had um, there wasn't a will and our family is <laughs> complicated set up and I think the hardest thing of and I my dad died seven days before my 21st birthday so although I was an adult like you know I was an adult mm -hmm. but all of a sudden I had I was th learning words like probate and having to go to the solicitor and having making the solicitor the executor of the will because there wasn't a will and it was just left and had no I had no idea what to do but then you just you know like you just that somehow you just do it and you just you know like you just work it out and a few my, my solicitor was amazing because obviously this is what they do but I think the hardest thing I had was being a young a young adult having to deal with it and I suppose being so upset and relatively young I didn't know where to go I didn't know what questions to ask around you know like my emotional support um, and I, I'd hope things have changed now where do you go for support where do you start if you don't have that family you know like a family set up where you've got your mum or your nan or your auntie around the corner um, and I didn't ask friends because you don't want because my friends are my age I didn't want to yeah. they're all out drinking and things like that it's it's really difficult you don't I think lots of people don't want it you don't want to impose on somebody else but someone's just died all of the experiences people shared were very different but it made me think wow there are so many people struggling and um, what did you what did you find interesting about the comments you received firstly as you say how many people did respond um, and what I want to do is to take all of those comments and do something with so life is still hectic at the moment, but I'm, I want to group them into themes and and what can, what, how can I best use those? So how can I write? What can I write and teach other people? How can we learn? So themes were communication. Themes were looking after relatives as well. So very much what you touched upon, Tara. So things could be having a comfy chair to sit with, somebody asking, am I okay? Um, accepting offers of help. Things like um, knowing the choices you have and, and choices aren't always explained to you. So we, we become frightened and impotent in that situation. So people keep saying, I wish I'd known that. If I'd known that then, this is what I would have done differently. So I think what I took from it is the need to empower the public as to what to expect, to what they've got a right to ask for and how services do join up, I think is, is quite a strong theme I've taken from that Torah. Nobody um, mentioned something called continuing healthcare to me. Now, that's the way that you can access um, care for your family. And I knew about that, so I knew to ask and to um, ensure that we had that support because nobody can nurse somebody 24 hours a day. But then I thought, my goodness, if I hadn't asked, who would have asked? Things like understanding that somebody needs to be seen by a GP um, in order for them to be able to write a death certificate. Um, usually within 14 days now more recently with COVID 28 days so being the one to chase up practices and say um, you know I'm really worried about my relative I think they might be dying over the weekend they haven't been seen for over 28 days please could you um, so how many people would know that and maybe if, if we put more of this knowledge in the hands of the public it, it would be empowering that, that was a, a thought that I took from the responses. What does compassionate care look like and who provides it? 
very trendy topic at the moment, isn't it? So compassion, we talk about compassion. And um, I remember years ago, going back nearly 30 years ago, talking to um, a very respected colleague about compassionate care. And he would say, who provides compassionate care and where do we start? And his argument was we would start on staff. And that may sound strange to you. I can, you know, we can see each other and I can see you nodding. But unless we look after each other as staff, how on earth do we then have enough reserve and strength to care for others? I imagine compassionate care almost like a ripple. So if we start with staff in the middle, then rippling out to relatives and friends of, of a patient as well. Um, coming back to both of our experiences, Tara, relatives and friends are often a primary caregiver for somebody reaching the end of their life. We're reaching a ripple out further, um, compassionate care um, then extends patience. And that means, how would I wish to be treated? I, I would wish somebody to ask what mattered to me. Um, I would wish to be treated with dignity, with respect. So compassion incorporates all of those elements. To finalise, I'd say that compassionate care involves looking after yourself as well. So if you don't recognise the impact of caring for people has on you, you, you have to be able to keep yourself topped up and to deliver. So compassionate care, I would break down into those four components. To talk about those in more depth, how, how do you provide compassionate care for staff? You're supportive, you're available, you listen, you're non-judgmental. People always want to get things right. Nobody does something wrong on purpose, you find, in, in all of our jobs. Um, so not being judgmental when somebody comes to you. Um, with relatives, it's recognising the huge role that they're playing, that the emotions they're experiencing. Tara, you talked about being 20 years old through your experiences, which sounds devastating to go through, but every age has its own devastation. Yeah. So children, you know, pre the sort of memory age or you're mindful of how do you be compassionate to a family recognising that child might not have a memory um, because they're too young. Um, teenage boys, um, Michael is healed because how does, how does a teenage boy express emotion? I think they, they really struggle with end of life. So recognising the need of, of that sort of adolescent, a young person, the situation that you're in, provide, how do you provide compassionate care to a 20-year-old in, in that situation? Very, very different. But then equally, if you, you look to somebody that's been married for nearly 60 years, you know, that, that, that Compassion is recognising that relationship is, is so valuable and so precious and about to end. So relatives, all of those different things that I'm thinking about for compassion. Compassion for patients, it's, it's very much how, how would you wish to be treated? I don't think there's one answer that I could bottle and say for relatives, other, sorry for patients, other than what would I want somebody to do for me? If, if I was watching, what would I know is the right thing to do? And that changes for everybody. But listening, coming back to what we were saying is listening. Um, and compassion for yourself, it's about being kind to yourself. It's about saying to your colleagues when you're hurting. There have been some days when I've said, I can't do that. I'm not the right person today to see that patient because I just can't today. So being compassionate to yourself is enabling yourself to say that. Being compassionate to yourself is only owning and learning from the mistakes because we all make mistakes, Tara. I'd love to say that I don't, but I do. Um, and recognising you're not always right. Um, and that's a really hard lesson because you, you can forage on and think, oh, I'm right, I'm right, I know what I'm doing. But having the humility to say, actually, I wasn't right in that situation. I've spoken about staff, relatives, patients from Compassion because I think we, we all fall into that different wheel at some times. Although we're professionals, you and me, we're relatives as well, aren't we? We're, we're people and at some times we're patients as well. So Compassion, I hope I haven't veered too off track here, but Compassion in, encompasses all of those elements for me. How do you separate your personal experiences 
from your professional experiences. So when you're working and you find yourself in a very similar situation or you can really relate to somebody's situation, how do you bring those experiences into your discussion or do you, you know, like, is there a line and you have a bit of a, maybe a wall up in order for you to do your job? How do you separate uh, an experience? So in one element, you have to recognise you can't bring your personal experience because it's your experience and it would be wrong to overlay that on somebody else. It's really important to recognise um, you have to have a huge amount of self-awareness, Tara. And there are some situations that I've been in where I found it difficult to separate the two situations. But I'm very mindful that if I'm talking to a family, if I've been talking to a family, that's their experience, that's not my experience. What I do do is, after I've had a difficult experience, is to debrief with somebody, and that can be anybody on the ward as well. And what I take from that is also to enable anybody that I've known who's had a difficult experience to debrief. So anybody, for example, who might break bad news, I would go up to them, no matter how senior or junior they are, and say, that must have been tough for you. How have you coped with that? If somebody only took one thing from this conversation, what would you want that one thing to be? What I would say is think and plan ahead. If this is my platform, I would say think ahead. So think ahead to empower yourself. Um, think ahead to do things like lasting power of attorney. Think ahead to what matters to you. Think ahead to have conversations with your family. Um, there's lots of discussion about difficult conversations, but I change that to say these aren't difficult conversations. These are important conversations. And I think in the COVID times we're in now, it's hopefully teaching people more than ever to have the conversation. This isn't something in the professional domain. This is, is something that we should be doing. So basically have the conversation, think and plan ahead. So I'm married. I've got three children. I don't have a will. It's, some, it's something we've been talking about for absolutely ages. And I won't bore the listeners, but my solicitor at the time when my dad died said the people that need the will the most are always the people that do not have them. Absolutely. I, I, my family setup now is, is, is straightforward, but when you're saying think and plan ahead, it, is for my husband and I to have our will to think about the care of our children to think about our estate and our money and um, think about my business yes um so it's it's I think it's one of those things where it's so important but for some reason we prioritize the trivial things next time I speak to you it, this will all be done and dusted unless it's like tomorrow um we will sort it um because having been on the other end of it if anything happened to my husband or myself I wouldn't want my children to have the stress of you know even just find where do I keep this where do I keep these documents just trying to find things and even though my kids are small but for me to say to my sister okay this is where you would go this is where we keep things um because it, it's a lot to deal with and we don't want to be dealing with the disorganization of the information and things like that it would just it, that would make it a little bit easier so I echo that and I will I will do that I will text you in two weeks time <laughs> and ask if you've made that appointment I will I will Claire thank you so much um if people want to connect with you on social media where can they find you um Tara I'm on Twitter um Claire Fuller 17 and Always happy to talk to colleagues, either direct message me um, via Twitter, get in touch, Clairefully17. Tara, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.
thank you so much for joining us. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you really like it, it would be great if you left us an iTunes five star rating and review. And I will see you in the next episode. 